Welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. We're a network that exists to provide relationships and resources to amplify a Jesus-centered movement, and we seek to embody a more hopeful vision of following Jesus in our cultural moment. Join us as we learn from those who are looking to live out a greater Jesus centricity in their areas of leadership and mission. If you're new to Jesus Collective, welcome. Check us out on social media or at JesusCollective.com for ways you can connect to this growing movement. Okay, let's get into today's podcast. I'm glad that you're here with us. For those of you who don't know, that is Paul Walker and I am Shauna Boren and we are your podcast hosts for the Jesus, Jesus Collective podcast. And we have a good time. We have great conversations. Today is really exciting, Paul. I know you're super jazzed about today. Super jazzed. I know. I know. I can't. Um, uh, yeah. He's been talking it, about it for a while. So he's really I, I've excited. Been, I've been like anticipating it like Advent. It's an apocalyptic moment. <laughs> You you could say that indeed. And uh, so without further ado, we want to let you guys know why we're so excited. We are talking today with Jeremy Duncan. And I want to tell you a little bit about Jeremy before we welcome him in um, to the conversation. And this is going to be really, really great, you guys. Jeremy is the founding pastor of Commons Church in Calgary. He lives in Calgary with his partner, Rachel, their two adopted kiddos, and their dog. Um, he has recently written a book, which we're going to be talking about today, and that book is entitled The Upside Down Apocalypse. So everybody get ready. Get your rations ready. We're talking the apocalypse. Welcome to the podcast, Jeremy. We are so, so glad that you're here. Great. Uh, thanks for the invite. This is uh, this a lot of fun. Awesome. Um, <laughs> we would love for you to tell us a bit about yourself because the bios, you know, we just pull information. So you tell us, Jeremy, you give us your spin on who you are and what you're about. And then secondly, kind of tell us a little bit about your connection to Jesus Collective, if you wouldn't mind, please. Yeah, I am. Of course. So yeah, you mentioned uh, I work at Commons Church here in Calgary. Uh, I started this church in 2014. Before that, I worked for about a decade at a church here in the city. So I've been in Calgary a long time now, but originally I'm from the Toronto area in Scarborough and uh, made my way west. So everyone on the East Coast, uh, hi, my love, my family is still there. Uh, my wife's family is still out there, uh, but we've been out here in Calgary for uh, for almost, almost two decades now. Uh, this is home for us now. We planted a church here. We adopted two kids here. Uh, we're, we're probably uh, stuck here for any foreseeable future, but but it's a it's a really cool city. Uh, one of the neat things has been being part of Calgary during a period when Calgary has changed so much, and we've seen a lot of change and a lot of shifts, a lot of demographics, a lot of growth, um, and then getting to to plant the church here. And uh, Jesus Collective uh, is a, a partnership that has grown out of that investment in Commons Church. So Commons. Mm was really founded about a decade ago with this purpose of having a, what we said was a Jesus-centered approach to Christianity. Our our values are intellectually honest, spiritually passionate, Jesus at the center. This was a big part of what we thought was missing from uh, the dialogue in the Christian community here in the city. So when Jesus Collective was sort of forming and came on the scene, um, just fortuitously, I happened to be on the East Coast uh, when there was initial meeting, and I was able to get down to Washington, D.C. and be part of that initial 
um, sort of creative meeting when the idea was being floated about. And then I've been part of things ever since. I've uh, been able to come to the Unite conference and be able to uh, be part of a hub and, and make lots of connections. So it's been a really good thing for me personally and a great thing for our church, which has sometimes felt a little adrift at times hmm. um, to make some connections, uh, find some colleagues, share some ideas. It's, uh, yeah, it's been a couple of years now. Wow. That is so awesome. I, I love Calgary too. It's like, mm -hmm. it's such a cool city. Um, I love the mountains and you got Banff yeah. and all of that there. So what a great place to land and yeah, to be there in a really kind of like exciting time. That's, that sounds great. Yeah. So just for a side, I, I moved to Calgary when there was 850,000 people and moving from Toronto to Calgary felt very small town. Uh, Calgary is now 1.3 million. It's just a very different urban environment. And Common Search is sort of right in the urban core of the city. So it's been a lot of change over the time. But but yeah, cool city. The mountains are amazing. You know, you can drive to Canmore anytime you want. So that's, that's nice. So good. I'm, so always, good. I'm always in these conversations with you Canadians, man. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about like the Lord just blesses this country. Uh -huh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll just sit here and um, just enjoy, enjoy the camaraderie between you two. <laughs> well, if it makes you feel any better, uh, we had terrible cold snap right before okay. Christmas. So we yes. were in the same yes. boat as you. So there you okay. go. Solidarity Perfect. all around everyone here it. on the podcast in the same boat. I love boat. it. Thank you. <laughs> so we're curious, Jeremy, like out of all the things to write a book on, like you think about this, you grow up, you go through college, seminary, all of that, you know, you pastor years, you think maybe I'll write a book one day. My goodness, you've written a book on Revelation. A, a very like, like that's to many people that raises a few eyebrows. And so I'm curious what Absolutely. initially like fascinated you about this last book in the New Testament? Mm -hmm. So this may buy me some credibility from some people out there. Uh, might lose me some on others, but uh, Revelation's not actually my bag. Like that's not the thing that I'm most fascinated about. <laughs> wow, I sort of cute, came into cute. this backwards. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, honestly, I mean... <laughs> if you come out and you just say like Revelation is my thing, like already that that should throw up a few yeah. red flags. Mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't mine. It was in uh, seminary. Uh, when I was doing my master's and uh, I, I was on a thesis track um, to, to go on to doctoral work, which I may or may not do at some point, but I needed to write uh, my thesis. And uh, one of the, the, the person that I was studying was um, a theologian slash anthropologist named René Girard, who writes about nonviolence, um, has developed, you know, what we call the generative scapegoat mechanism or the scapegoat theory of the atonement, which I find really compelling. But when I was writing, I was looking for gaps in the literature. And one of the gaps was interfacing Girard's ideas with the book of Revelation, or more generally, apocalyptic literature, which was interesting because Girard uh, uses this term, the apocalypse, all the time. Like, this is what he sees uh, the cross as, is the apocalypse that reveals uh, the true state of the world to us. But then when it comes to things like Revelation, he's just like, ah, oh, that's too violent. It's mythic thinking. Just ignore that stuff. Because he's not, he's not a biblical scholar. Um, and so he just, whenever he comes up against things that don't really fit his model, he often has a tendency to just kind of write them off. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity to marry some of the biblical studies work that's out there showing that Revelation is not what it appears to be on the surface with some of Girard's ideas. So that's what I wrote about in my thesis. It's called A Girardian View of Apo 
a Girardian view of violence in apocalyptic literature, something like that. Like eight people on my committee read it and that was it. And I thought that was the end of it. Um, <laughs> but I, I got my degree. COVID comes along and all of these conspiracy theories, Mark of the Beast and vaccines, all this stuff starts bubbling up all over the place. And at that point, I was in a conversation with Harold Press, uh, who is a Mennonite Anabaptist publisher, uh, peace publisher. And we were looking at projects and they were interested in um, doing something about uh, nonviolence and a healthier, more grounded way to read Revelation. And I was like, well, actually, um, that's that's an area I've done a lot of study. Now, they didn't want a book on René Girard. Um, books on dead French anthropologists apparently don't sell all that well, but they were interested in... Who knew? Who or, knew? Yeah, what? Exactly, right? <laughs> I would buy so, that book, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe that's totally what I'll get to right next. Me knows? and five other people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, But they were interested in, in this sort of nonviolent approach to revolution, which I had written about. So I was like, yeah, we can do that. So Upside Down Apocalypse is sort of some of the ideas from my thesis, but written in a very different way and really written with a different focus. It's not meant to follow Girard. It's meant to give us a gospel-centered reading of Revelation. That That's the whole uh, sort of conceit of the book, is that every major image in Revelation, I'm going back and I'm taking a scene from the Gospels and I'm comparing that and I'm saying, look, there is a way to read Revelation that's consistent with the Jesus of the Gospels. So that's how I ended up here. And it was really my commitment to nonviolence and my commitment to the way of Jesus uh, that led me to Girard's work that led me to finding a gap in his literature, which led me to Revelation, which led me to COVID, which led me to a uh, uh, publishing deal with, with Harold Press. But, that's but why COVID that. was yeah. an issue. Wow. <laughs> I, I love the thorough yeah. thread of that. That is so cool. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's, yeah. it's quite, wow. the, quite the winding path around. But you know what? In the end, um, I think what I got to do with this book was really write about what I wanted to write about, which is hey, our hermeneutic needs to be grounded in the person of Jesus. Yes. And if we do that, then we're going to interpret Revelation in a particular way. If we don't ground ourselves in Jesus, well, then Revelation can take us in pretty much any direction that we want. So that's sort of the what's no undergirding the book. And then I used, you know, my scholar background in Revelation to sort of enlighten some of those specific images in there. So mm. I love it. And it seems like such a duh, like, of course, we should be mm. looking at that gospel, uh, looking at Revelation through the gospel centered lens of Jesus. Um, but so many don't. And so I'm really excited because I know we're going to dive into that in our conversation in a bit. However, first of all, Paul was, I'm going to say, geeking out. Truly, truly over <laughs> over the fact that he discovered through reading your book that you were a huge Pearl Jam fan. Yeah. And so, uh, Jeremy, if anything else we need to know before we dive into the meat of everything, um, we just got to know, like, what about your recent experience of listening to that Pearl Jam album, right? And mm -hmm. like, what did that teach you about reading challenging texts and scripture? <laughs> Enlighten the people. Mm. Yeah, so there's lots of bands out there, but uh, I, I talk about this in the book that I that Pearl Jam, their first album, 10, came out in 1991. I was 13 years old. You can do the math on how old I am now. Um, but like that was the moment where I was first choosing music in a band for myself. And so it's just yeah. stuck with me. I have followed this band everywhere. I've seen them live a ton of mm. times. I, I have all the albums. One of the things that I do appreciate about Pearl Jam as much as I love their music, is that if you um, 
can actually get through Eddie Vedder's mumbly singing to learn the lyrics of the song. Which I, I understand. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, understand. That can't there's be hard. Some, you know, the gravelly, the it's, I mean, yeah. it's a thing. It's hard. But if you can get through, I, I one of the things I love about Pearl Jam is they are, they really are activists. They have, yeah. they've taken on Ticketmaster. Yeah, I was of, just about uh, to say you know, that. They took on uh, Ticketmaster. Someone should. Someone should. They absolutely, they have, uh, they've always had, they've, they've taken on a lot of, in the US, uh, the military industrial complex and yeah. argued for peace and against war. Gigaton, the, the title itself comes from uh, climate change and how much carbon yeah. we're putting in the atmosphere and how we need to be conscious about our impact on the environment around us. So, um, Apart from my absolute love of the music, I also love this sort of activist stream that Pearl Jam and Eddie Vedder have always had through all their career mm -hmm. and uh, continue to, to be inspired by that. Uh, all jokes aside, I actually do continue to be inspired by uh, people who have eschewed as much as they can the fame and tried to use that platform for things that they care about. I, I think that's um, I think that's that's worthwhile. Absolutely. There's my plug for Pearl Jam. <laughs> that's awesome. So what about like, so you're listening to this album, mm -hmm. Gigaton, and like, it's a very, like, I had to listen to the album to prepare for this podcast. And I was like, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. It's a different sound for Pearl Jam. So yeah. what about that unique album? Like you were learning a lesson in because you, there's something about your commitment to Pearl Jam and this right. new sound that kind of you discovered something. What is that? <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's what I talk about. It's sort of the introduction of the book is this idea that, um, and, and some of the album is is classic Pearl Jam. So if you're into Pearl Jam, go listen to the album if you haven't already. If you're into Pearl Jam, you've already listened to it. Yeah, you have. But the lead single, Dance with the Clairvoyance, and there's a couple other songs that just have a, a bit of a different vibe, a little more poppy vibe to them, and caught me a little off guard. I wasn't sure if this was what I was looking for, but the idea was I had so much invested in Pearl Jam that I stuck with it and I kept listening and I kept looking for the themes that were going to resonate with me. And that's really, you know, what I'm, I'm talking about in Revelation is that if we have a commitment to Jesus, we're going to go back to Revelation over and over again and say, okay, this doesn't make sense to me. Why does this look so violent? What's under the surface here? What is this writer trying to get at that's going to bring me back to the Jesus that I know? And that's the same thing with Pearl Jam. It's like, wh what is it in this sound that is going to bring mm. me back to the Pearl Jam that captured my imagination, you know, 30 years ago? And eventually I found it in the album. And certainly I have found that in, in Revelation, this way that, that the, the peaceful Jesus of the Gospels is there. Mm -hmm. There's just a particular genre that's layered over top of that that sometimes makes it hard to sift through. So mm. I love that. Like, Dear listener, if you're listening in, you didn't think that, that Pearl Jam was going to give you decided <laughs> biblical interpretation, but here we are. Here we here are. Here we just, are. Just one of the many reasons to listen to this podcast. <laughs> okay, so my cultured. friend. So cultured. <laughs> uh, we're talking about French anthropologists, Rene Girard, and Pearl Jam in the same <laughs> sentence. It's so good. It's just so good. Okay, so Apocalypse, the Upside Down Apocalypse. That's, mm. that's the title of your book. And just the word apocalypse for many folks. Mm -hmm. They hear the word and it just conjures just a ton of like world-ending scenarios. And so mm -hmm. it's the topic of your book. It's it's also the topic of many Hollywood blockbusters. It's like apocalypse now, all of this. Like there's a whole genre of like world-ending movies and series. I'm thinking of like The Walking Dead, all of that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. right? Like it, mm -hmm. it is what it is. And so I'm curious, like you're going after this word apocalypse what exactly are you saying to 
your audience in this? How are we yeah. going to understand apocalypse? So uh, probably a lot of people know this, but the, the term apocalypse, apocalypsis in Greek, uh, means to reveal something, to uncover something, right? So we tend to think of apocalypse as the end of the world. Um, mm -hmm. Originally, before the book of Revelation was written, apocalypse meant to reveal something. And, and I think this is really important because when we call the book the apocalypse or the revelation of St. John, what we are saying is that in this book, something is going to be made clear to us, not something is going to be obfuscated behind riddles that we'll never figure out. Like the whole point is John is trying to lay something bare to you. And if you think of apocalyptic movies, um, if you can kind of step out of, you know, the world ending drama, that's really what apocalyptic movies are trying to do. They're trying to tell you something about your world, right? Mm -hmm. Like The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Good movie with Viggo Mortensen in it. I mean, it's mm -hmm. depressing as all get out, you know. But but ultimately, that book is trying to show you something about um, our own greed and our narcissism and the way that we care about ourselves and, and not our neighbor. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's about the end of the world, but it's, it's really about, hey, we need to be better as human beings. Mm. That's what the apocalypse of, of John is doing. It's not talking about the end of the world. It's using that genre that, by the way, John didn't invent. It was a very popular genre in the intertestamental period. Yep. There's lots of apocalypses. Um, you can find them all over the place. The apocalypse of Enoch, the apocalypse of Noah, apocalypse of Abraham. There's there's lots of them out there, and they all talk the same way because it was a it was a it was a genre. But he's using that genre to say something about the mm -hmm. world that he lives in, and by extension, the world that we live in. And my argument in the book is that not only is he doing that, is he's flipping one of the premises of the apocalyptic genre upside down. So he is subverting your expectations of the world by using the apocalypse, but he's also subverting your expectations of an apocalypse in and of itself. So mm. apocalypses were, were, I mean, they were downers, right? Like these were people who had essentially given up on the idea that the world could be saved. Things had not gone well for a very long time and the genre erupts because people are like, well, the world sucks, so maybe we should just write stories about how it gets worse and worse and worse until God shows up and just like crushes everybody. Mm. That that's the genre. Yeah. But Revelation actually does the opposite. It sets you up for that, and then at the very last minute, it keeps pulling the rug out and saying, "Actually, no. Things are going to be better. Things are going to be good. Things are going to be saved. Things are going to be healed." If the genre apocalypse is all about how God is going to destroy the world, Revelations sort of, uh, you know, modus operandi, it's, it's big verses in chapter 11 when it says, now comes the time to destroy that which destroys the earth. Mm -hmm. It's a subversion of the whole genre. The earth is not getting destroyed. The things that destroy are getting destroyed. And so that's, that's where the title comes from, is that John is doing this sort of subtle double subversion. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to weave this sort of futuristic tale to tell you something about your world. I'm also going to use a genre and flip that upside down to help you hope for something good and not to be despairing. And once you kind of get that as a framework, which I talk about early in the book, then when you come to the specific images in Revelation, you have a very different perspective on, on what is being shown to you because you're looking for the hope and you're looking for the subversion and you're looking for what John's trying to do. Um, which is really important. It's like your, your reading strategy um, 
influences what you take away from from the words on the page and and that that's what i was trying to get at with that title yeah oh so good i i'm thinking literally i do i have a question but i still i still have this thought though that i want to throw at you first like the whole the subversion of the genre that you talked about um the upside down like i at least here where I am in my context in in my spaces in the States, it feels like a lot of folks miss that. And they're just, they're seeing, you know, they're seeing those big grandiose violent imagery and, and they think that's going to be the victory. And I'm, that's, I'm just so intrigued by, by Mm -hmm. what you're saying and, and your book that you wrote about this. Like, why do you think so many folks miss that? Why, why aren't they seeing the subversion of the genre and why are they really like tapping into the the gore and the violence and thinking that's how the victory is going to come because that's not jesus well okay so this is exactly it and i think um i think this is why all of us including myself struggle with a text like revelation because the jesus of the gospels is so challenging for us and so counterintuitive to what we expect about victory and power and control um, he keeps laying those things down. He keeps walking away from it. He keeps uh, expanding boundaries and pushing back the edges to invite people in. We know that he is transformative. We're drawn to that story. Um, but as soon as we have the opportunity to revert to form, I think we just take it. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. It's like we know Jesus is powerful. We want to follow him because we're captivated by what he teaches. But Revelation... It's, it's almost like it gives us this out to go back to what we really wanted God to be like. Yeah. Which was more like us and less like Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and this is, I mean, ultimately, this is what I think it is, which is why we have to center the Jesus who is the revelation of God, the apocalypse of God, if you want to call it that way, right? Jesus showed us who God was by coming in the incarnation and dying and rising, Therefore, any interpretation of Jesus, including John's, that doesn't line up with that mm-hmm. is false. Because Jesus, Paul tells us, Hebrews tells us, is the full image of yeah. the divine. That's who we worship. So if Revelation gives us a different Jesus, we should toss it. Mm-hmm. My argument in this book is actually it doesn't. It's just that when you are looking for the chance to revert to form, and you're looking for the chance to go back to the violence that you really want to hold on to in your heart, mm-hmm. it's going to give you that opportunity. Yeah. If you center Jesus, if you hold on to the peace of Jesus, you're going to pick up on the cues and the subversion and what John is actually doing in Revelation, which is going to give you not only a more faithful picture of Jesus, but my argument in the book is a more faithful interpretation of what John is actually trying to do in Revelation. Mm. And so whenever... You get to an image and you're like, oh, this seems like the God that I want, the God that's going to crush my enemies, the God that's going to yeah. be just as mean as I am. You know, what I say in the book is you you, you just got to keep reading a little bit farther. Yeah. Because the page is going to turn and John's going to pull the rug out from under you. So right. don't get stuck. Like, just keep going and keep looking for Jesus and that's going to come up. But honestly, I mean, that's that's my thing. And I think it, that I've, I reflect on that myself as well, that we want God to look like us not like yeah. Jesus. Yeah. And whenever we have the chance, that's yeah. what we go to. Yeah. Yeah. Path of least resistance, like for yes. sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
that that and like what what works better for an empire is certainly if you're going to expand Absolutely. and and if you're going to use people and religion as a tool, it's like a nonviolent Jesus is really crappy to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's not really going to be on your side. He's not useful. I've, yeah, 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 I've literally heard folks say like, I don't want to follow a pansy Jesus. Like how no. how is that going to do anything? And I'm just like, I don't no. want to be in this so conversation. First of all, I've heard that before too. Uh, first of all, you know, I mean, obviously that's unhealthy. But a couple of things. First of all, associating the idea of gentleness and meekness, which takes incredible courage and self-discipline mm. to continue to be that in the midst of opposition, mm-hmm. to associate that with, you know, um, weakness or being a pansy or some kind of insult is is a complete misreading of the courage that it takes to be nonviolent. One. No doubt. Mm. Second of all, it's it's a subversion of this idea that yeah, Jesus was one way once but he won't be that way in the future. Right. And if that's if if that's the Jesus that you follow, you should at least be honest with mm. the fact that you do not follow the Jesus who is incarnated here on the world. You follow some future imagination of you hope who you hope Jesus will become. Mm. And as a Christian, my bias is that actually no I follow the person who is here walking through ancient Palestine showing me what it meant to be human. Uh, regardless of how hard that is, that's that's the Jesus that I follow. I don't always live up to it, but that's the one I'm trying to. So, yeah, because I, I think for that. for many folks, it's like when we talk about like having Jesus at the center. To them, they often frame it in the context of yeah, we had this Old Testament. This right. for some, uh, it's called the Old Covenant. For others, it's the First Covenant. But this idea of like yeah, Jesus fulfills. We're onto something different. I can read Scripture through the lens of Jesus, and then they see Jesus doing what looks like to them very non-Jesusy things: rider mm-hmm. on a horse uh, with a tattoo down his leg and a sword. Uh, for some people, they say the sword's in his hand, but it's actually in his mouth. If you mouth the text. <laughs> closely so i'm curious like why is it important that we need to start with the gospels because some some might push back and they might say well isn't that isn't that not the whole jesus right like you you drew attention to this this idea of like uh we've got palestinian earthly jesus and then like for some people they draw uh, a contrast to say, oh, but what about the cosmic Christ? You know, mm-hmm. it's almost like he, you know, Hercules got his powers back and he's coming back yep. to throw throw a, a hammer. What, what would your tail, response be to name that? Names. Yeah. Yeah. So so this is the accusation is like you're creating a canon within a canon, right? Yeah. You're elevating the gospels above uh, the rest of the New Testament or above the Hebrew scriptures. So what I'm going to argue is no, I'm not interested in elevating the gospels above the rest of the canon. What I'm interested in doing is elevating Jesus above the canon. Um, And I'm actually pretty unapologetic of that, that I don't worship the Bible. I love the Bible. I study the Bible. I've spent a lot of time and money on education, uh, you know, learning about the Bible and teaching the Bible. But at the end of the day, this book is not what I worship. This book is what leads me to an encounter with the risen Christ. And the risen Christ is the Word of God, capital W, that I worship and that guides me through the world. Now, the Gospels are my window into understanding that Jesus. The Gospels are not um, pure or unbiased in that sense. Those are individual writers that have their own perspective on Jesus, and I understand that. But but all of our human writing, you know, the canon is this 
profound mixture of um, human creativity and the guiding of the spirit and all those things melding together that we have continued to hold as our norming norm throughout all of Christianity. But it's not the center of our worship. That's Jesus. So to me, the, the thing to reframe is I'm not trying to create a canon with a canon where the gospels are more important than revelation. I am trying to say, no, I worship Jesus. And the Jesus that I encounter is then going to influence how I interpret everything, including Paul, including Revelation, including my encounters with the people around me, because I'm interpreting those all the time, and I'm doing that through the lens of Jesus. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, and I think as you you show us in your book, and we're going to get more into that in a second, is like, there's a way of reading Revelation that you're gonna, you're actually gonna encounter the Jesus of the Gospels in Revelation, mm-hmm. and that's such an important mm-hmm. point. We'll get there, but I'm gonna throw it back to Shauna. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I'm thinking about, and I'm gonna date myself probably with this, but um, I'm thinking about uh, the Left Behind series, and you know, like that 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 series can sell 80 min, 80 million copies, and some of the best thinking and writing on revolution uh, revelation be le- is left on the shelf, right? Like, so there's mm-hmm. so much that lends to the misreading of Revelation. And I'm even thinking of just when someone says, we're going to do a study in Revelation, and just the things, the thoughts that maybe you conjure up in your mind. I think back to youth group. I think back to DC talk, wish we'd all been ready. I think back to like, oh, the terror of being left behind. You know, like those, mm-hmm. that's all the imagery that comes to my mind. So, so Jeremy, what do you think? What is it about this book that lends itself to so much, well, fear, but, but ultimately like so many misreadings? So, I, I mean, I think it comes down to the reason that apocalypse is still grab our imagination they're they're fun like mad max is a great <laughs> so movie. much fun you know because, <laughs> so because terrified seeing, yeah <laughs> but, but but even that even being terrified is fun in a sense right like yeah it, yeah it yeah. creates emotions it creates experiences within us like we enjoy it fun might not be the right word but it, it creates um just this real enc- encounter with a narrative and a story and i think that's compelling for us because it, it 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 sort of leaves this canvas where then we get to put our own anxieties and our own things on display for ourselves in a in a really powerful way, and and Revelation gives these images that are so much bigger than the lived experience of a lot of people living in the first century. Like I don't want to be too hyperbolic here, but let's be honest. This kind of literature is akin to, you know, going to the cinema and watching Avatar or, or a Marvel yeah. movie. Like, you you are tapping into these larger-than-life characters and these larger-than-life scenarios that make your world feel scaled up. So, I, I'm, and I, it's not, I'm not surprised at all that all of these types of stories continue to be um, compelling that that revelation itself continues to be compelling because there is an element of that. And the second thing is that they are cathartic because we get to see things that we think are broken with the world named for us. Mm -hmm. Um, And in some sense, we get to see those things then broken in front of us. Mm -hmm. And that tells us, no, I'm not wrong for believing that this is unjust. And I'm not wrong for believing that the world should be different. That kind of validation, I think, should be honored and celebrated. Now, what I think the problem is, is people's frustration with the world then translates into, 
Therefore, the way it should be changed should be violent. And then they're yeah. going to look for that. And then they're going to find that in Revelation. Mm-hmm. And I think Revelation is trying to subtly show you that and then flip it to something better. Yeah. Um, now comes the time to destroy that which destroys the earth. Yes. So, you know, you're not getting destroyed. Your enemies are not getting destroyed. The 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 anti-God forces of sin and death are getting destroyed in Revelation. Yeah. So that you can be healed. So that the world can be healed. And hear this. So that your enemies can be healed. That's the part we don't like. But but that's, (laughs) but that's what's going on in the story. That's why it's compelling to us. That's why we still Mm -hmm. like these stories. I just think if we can kind of step back from some of what we heard and read Revelation through the lens of a lot of good scholarship that's out there, Mm. we'll see the way that Revelation is, is telling us our instincts are right. Things are broken. Mm-hmm. Things need to be fixed, but mm-hmm. just not in the way that you imagine. And I think yeah. that's the message we need to take away from it. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of seeing it like, you know, Jesus is a part of the Avengers and coming to take down Thanos with <laughs> right. power and violence. And we're all like, yeah. I mean, like, I'm a huge Marvel fan. Like, I jumped out of Same. my seat in that <laughs> moment. Right. Like, I was so stoked. But that, that that's not what it is. That's not that's not what Jesus is going to do. He there will be victory, but it's going to look very different than that. And and praise God for that. The victory yes. of Jesus all through Revelation is the victory of Jesus on the cross. So, and I think this yeah. is important is Revelation Tweet is not out. imagining. Yeah. yeah. Revelation is not imagining Jesus coming back to get his victory. Jesus is imagining the implications of the victory that Jesus already won in his demonstration of self-giving love. Right. So everything you see in the images unfolding are not future moments when Jesus will finally win. They are ways of imagining and rethinking the victory that Jesus won on the cross already. And Mm. I mean, that in itself is a really important framing when we try to wrestle with these images uh, along the way. Um, Because John comes back to that over and over again, gives us different images, all kinds of different ways of imagining it. But it's always the self-giving love of Jesus demonstrated on the cross that wins the day. And that's what he wants us ultimately to put our faith in. Not not some future Jesus that will win, but the right. Jesus of history that did win. That That's who Already we're following has. here. Yeah. So, so that that calls more out of me, Jeremy, because that makes me... Mm-hmm. It, it makes me really need to look to the cross, to look to the way that that Uh, Jesus, like it makes me trust more in the work of Jesus now. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas like a future Jesus, you know, that of my imagining calls me out. And and again, I think it's part of the difficulty of seeing that is the rich metaphor, the the Mm -hmm. multiple imageries that John, because it's apocalyptic, it's Mm -hmm. kind of wrestling through. So I'm curious, like, we often pass over some of these references, but in your book, like you helpfully suggest that like there's some stuff going on that the original audience would have understood there's some stuff right. mm-hmm. some empire references there's uh, there's a historical meaning and so i'm just curious like if you could unpack an example of like what is a mm. historical reference that we often just read over and think it's like sometime in the future yeah so the way to think about revelation I argue, is literarily. So not literally, um, but also not literally in terms of the past or the future. So, you know, to get into technical terms here, there's an approach called preterism, which is the idea that everything in Revelation is about the Roman Empire. It's coded language about things that were happening then. It's all past. Futurist readings are, it's all uh, mystery to be solved about things that are going to happen in the future. Those are both, in a sense, 
literal readings. Now, they're not literal because it's all yeah. metaphor, but you're trying to map it onto events either in the past or the future. Uh, my argument is, I don't think John cares about Rome at all. I don't think John thinks Rome is the problem. I think John realizes that human empires are the problem mm -hmm. and that human empires have a tendency to rise up over and over again and to keep asserting themselves in the world. The and beast. That we need to, the beast. Exactly, right, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. So that we need to consciously, constantly be aware of looking for these patterns and seeing the way that the way of Jesus subverts them no matter when they come up. Now, he's speaking in the Roman Empire, so a lot of the, the imagery and the coded imagery is going to relate to Rome, but it's not about Rome. Mm -hmm. It's using Rome as an example, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you um, a modern example, and then and then one, I'll use the beast here. That's a good one. So in, um, you know, if I talked about the bears defeating the eagles, <laughs> uh, or, or, or or destroying the eagles, right? Mm -hmm. If if we were talking about politics right now, you could jump to the idea that I'm talking about Russia and I'm talking about America, right? Because mm. we have bears and eagles fighting. Uh, and people actually even, you know, think that they see America and Russia in the book of Revelation. But if I said that to you on a Monday morning, you would probably know I'm talking about an NFL game. Yeah. And I wouldn't explain to you I'm talking about football. I would just say it. Um, same thing, we could talk about bears and bulls, and I could be talking about the stock market, or I could be talking about, you know, um, you know, U.S. college sports or something. Like, we don't explain our metaphors to each other when we know that we're talking in the same language game, because it actually becomes awkward when you explain all your metaphors. Right, right. Man Revelation is doing the same. Exactly. It Revelation does. is doing the same kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, sorry, I have to write that down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, but no, well, actually, the point is Revelation doesn't mansplain because it doesn't need to. Like, when right. it uses these imagery, it just knows you know because you live in the same world that John yeah. does. So he doesn't have to go in and say, oh, by the way, when I say this, I mean this. Right. He just knows we all know what this language means and we can talk about it together. We are doing this all the time, but we just don't pay attention to it. Problem is we go read in Revelation from 2,000 years ago, we don't recognize the metaphors, and all of a sudden we get lost and we start adding our stuff to it. So, for example, you know, you mentioned the beast. That's a good example. Yep. We have a beast with seven heads, and one of those heads has had a fatal wound, but it comes back. Well, previous to the time of John, there was an emperor named Nero who was not a good guy who in a lot of ways represented the worst of what the Roman Empire could be, at least for the Christians. Well, he died. But at the time, there was uh, what's called the Nero Revividus legend, which was the idea that Nero didn't actually die because he had died uh, by suicide. And, uh, you know, that was kind of shameful. So they didn't let anybody see his body. And so this sort of myth developed that Nero hadn't actually died. He had gone into hiding and he was going to come back. Um, and so, you know, so there's this idea of this 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 head of the beast that represents empire. It's had a fatal wound. It's died, but but now it's alive again. John doesn't think Nero's coming back. He doesn't believe in the Nero Revividus legend. What he's saying is he's using that story that everybody knows, and he's saying it doesn't matter if Nero comes back because another head will always rise to take mm. its place. So there'll be there'll be Domitian, who's who's the empire in the time that he's writing. It doesn't matter if Rome 
fades away. There'll be America that will take its place. It doesn't matter if America fades away. There'll be China to take it. Like, it doesn't matter. This is what humans do when they accumulate more power than they deserve, is they begin to impose their view of the world and their view of of everything onto each other. So all of these images... Um, in their context, are, are pretty easy to understand. The beast with a head, a fatal wound, and comes back is the Nero Revividus legend. But the beast is not Nero. That's not the mm. point. Because the beast isn't Rome. The beast mm. is the idea of human power and coercion and manipulation and power and empire. And that keeps coming back, which is why when you just get into a preterist reading, you limit the scope of revelation yeah. to, okay, he's just talking about Nero. He's just talking about Rome. Okay. Neat history book. Now, revelation is talking to our experience of the world today. All of the empires that continue to, to steal our imagination from us mm-hmm. and tell us that tomorrow can only ever be a slightly modified version of today. Mm-hmm. Christ is telling us tomorrow can be radically different. The world can be radically changed. Mm-hmm. Everything can be healed. And that's the kind of hope you need. Empire, the last thing it wants you to do is hope for change. Empire right. wants you to believe that tomorrow, a year from now, a hundred years from now, will be the same as today. Christ wants you to believe everything can be changed, everything can be transformed. Mm. And when you get that, then the images in Revelation, even though they are coded to the first century, have infinite meaning for us, which is why for 2,000 years now, people keep reading this book and they keep seeing themselves and their world in it. That's not a mistake. Mm. Sometimes people have, sometimes people um, center it on themselves and their world. Revelation is about the year 2000 and me. Well, that's wrong. Because that's sort of a very chronocentric, egocentric way of reading. Mm. Revelation has something to say to me in 2022. Absolutely. 100% I'm with you. And and that's the sort of you know nuance I'm trying to find in reading this. I, I'm not a preterist. It's not all in the past, even though it's encoded first century mm-hmm. language. It's not about the future and future events, but it is about the things that human beings constantly wrestle with. And that kind of literary approach means Revelation continues to be relevant today, it will continue to be relevant a thousand years from now because it will still speak to the human experience. Mm-hmm. Mm. It makes me really curious, Jeremy, about like, man, like how did the church like drift away from like kind of yeah. seeing some of this like mm-hmm. um, empire critique as well? And more more than just like the historical stuff you're saying, uh, like mm-hmm. as the church drifted further, further um, away from perhaps some of the core teachings of Jesus and, and kind of befriended empire i'm thinking like constantine i'm thinking some mm-hmm. of the developments there where where empire is a tool of the church and the church in turn is a tool of empire and i'm just curious how revelation landed in in some of those contexts like whether it's reading became um confused um, yeah it's a curiosity that i have in mm-hmm. here in those comments so in the book, I don't have time to do a lot of synchronic reading. That's what we would call a synchronic reading of Revelation. Like, how has it been interpreted through time? Uh, and intentionally, you'll see most of uh, the scholars that I'm looking at are, are modern scholars. And then a lot of the secondary materials are first, second, and third century interpreters of Revelation. And the reason for that is precisely what you're saying, is those earliest interpreters of Revelation understood it in the context of the self-giving nonviolence of Jesus, because that was their positioning to come to the text. 
it, it made no sense to read Revelation from the context of power and the context of control because nobody had experienced, mm. you know, being a Christian that way. Over time, as the church becomes more powerful and asserts more dominance in the world, that changes how the, the book gets read. And so I think you actually get this window into Revelation by going back to some of the earliest interpreters like Origen and St. Victorinus and some of these writers in those first couple centuries who are resonating with the subversive power of Revelation. Once we become the ones in control of the power and the empire and all those things, of course that's going to shift how we read things. And, And I think this is something we're becoming more aware of as a culture right now that the place from which you read influences what you read. Yeah. If people haven't read uh, read the book, uh, you know, Reading While Black by Esau Macaulay, yeah. that's a really good introduction into this idea that your social location is going to change how you interpret things. Um, Macaulay is a, is a great scholar, but this is a very sort of um, a popular level book that you can, you can get into and you can read and you can sort of see that, oh man, um, a lot of what, I am doing and you are doing and everyone is doing is reading from their social location. And so with Revelation, going back to those earliest interpreters, reading from their social location and seeing what they read in Revelation becomes pretty eye-opening mm. and pretty um, confrontational to a lot of the more violence and dominance-oriented interpretations that would come in the centuries that follow. And that's that's a very intentional thing in the book that I'm doing is, is trying to find those earliest readings. Mm. That's mm. so good. Oh, I, it's just like a fire hose of just goodness. I, I'm, I'm here in class. Like I'm just, this is I so know. good for me. Yeah. I'm like, professor, send me the PowerPoint, please. Yeah. I can't keep up with my note taking. <laughs> All right, Jeremy, I'm wondering, um, what would you say, uh, what is the sort of apocalypse John is giving us in his story of the lamb on the throne in Revelation mm-hmm. 5? And what is that saying to us about power? Yeah, so this is... The Lamb on the Throne is, in a lot of ways, it's the most important image to get right in Revelation. Yeah. yeah. Because it's the it's the first really big apocalyptic moment. So before that, you have the seven letters. And John's doing this really interesting thing where he's easing into the apocalyptic by moving through sort of the personal, mm-hmm. uh, which is actually really important to the structure of Revelation, that he's like, look— you can't change the universe until it changes your hearts and the way that you live in community. So those seven letters are not like just cursory or forward that you can kind of skip through. It's actually part of his message that if it doesn't change the way we live with each other, it won't change our politics and then it won't change the cosmos. So we have to start there. But that's it. Mm. The Lamb on the Throne is our first big apocalyptic moment. And there's this really neat thing going on here. I, I One of my favorite quotes that I use in the book comes from David Barr, who's a Revelation scholar. But he says, the appearance of the lamb is, uh, oh, I know I'm going to miss his quote here. But he says, it's, it's hard to imagine um, a more complete reversal mm-hmm. of meaning, is essentially his quote. That John has led you through this whole chain of events to expect a Jesus to show up just all the way that we've been talking about. So this one on the throne, you know, very intriguing language from the start, right? It's not God on the throne. It's the one on the throne. Who is this one on the throne? You know, we're meant to assume it's God, but but John doesn't tell us that. And then he gives us these images that 
to be honest, don't feel a lot like the God revealed in Jesus. Right. There's this rumblings and peals of thunder and lightning, this very reminiscent of Jupiter. He holds a scroll in his hand, very reminiscent of these multiple images and statues of Domitian that we have of him holding a scroll in his right hand. There's this image of these 24 elders who lay down their crowns, very reminiscent of patterns in the Roman Empire, um, specifically Vespasian, where, um, you know, uh, um, dignitaries would lay their golden crowns down before the emperor. There's 24 of them, very reminiscent of Domitian, who changed from 12 lictories, which all the emperors had always had, to 24 for him. Like, he's building up this image of the one on the throne, and you're like, oh, is God like the emperors? Maybe God is just a bigger, scaled-up version of the emperors. But then there's this moment He's holding the scroll and no one can open it. Mm-hmm. Presumably, not even the one on the throne. Mm-hmm. All of the power embodied in this image can't actually unfold destiny. That's, that's what the scroll meant for the Caesars in the Roman Empire. And then John hears about, and this is a motif that's used multiple times in Revelation. He hears about a lion, a warrior, someone in the in the vein of David, you know, that the, the root of Jesse is the language that's used there. So immediately, all you're thinking is, oh, okay, the Messiah is now who we thought the Messiah would be. A yeah. warrior like David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what I heard. It, but it, it, then I turned. Kinda, yeah, sorry. It go, go. Reads- it kind of reads like that if you ever encountered that old Christian singer Carmen. Remember, yes! he had this, like he's like yes! he's got the da, 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 da. it's like a Rocky moment. You're like, here comes Jesus, yep. and you know he's gonna come on the stage, and everyone's <laughs> oh gonna cheer in the congregation, right? Right? Oh it's it's God. super Jesus, right? So I don't know Carmen very well, but that's exactly the image here. <laughs> is John is building this all up, right? But then, of course, he says, but then I turned and I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. So Jesus is not the lion of the tribe of Judah. So people are like, oh, yeah, Jesus is the lion and the lamb. No, No. the whole point is he's not the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's not the root of Jesse, at least not in the way that we imagine it. He's not who we thought he was going to be at all. In fact, the way that he develops or he proves his worthiness is by being slain. Again, it's an image of the cross. It's an image of all of the violence that was enacted against Jesus, that is how Jesus overcomes. And it says, and then the lamb went and took the scroll from the hand of the one on the throne. And then the 24 elders and all the living creatures, I mean, they turn and they worship the lamb and they say, you are worthy to unfold the scroll and open its seals. So this this whole image is, is exactly what John does throughout the book. Build you up. You think you want a Jesus that's strong and powerful and mighty. I'll show you that and then the last second, I'll pull the rug out from Matthew, and I'll show you who Jesus really is. And this is how Jesus overcomes. This is how Jesus is worthy. This is how Jesus will right the world. Not by becoming something different than the cross, but but through the cross, through the slain lamb. And, and if you get that image there in chapter 5, then you start to see that image over and over again, all through yeah. the book, all it's the way through to the end. It's really important to get that image right. Yeah. It's like the interpretive key of the whole book. That's what I'm yeah. hearing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it really is. Because yeah. if you get that one right, then when you come to the divine warrior, mm. um, Jesus who shows up on the white horse, who has a sword that comes from his mouth, then you're going to be drawn back to and those blood, images. Blood. He's wearing like yeah. robes clothed. With- He's covered in blood when yeah. he shows up to the battle, not after the battle. 
Yeah. Right? He shows up covered in blood. So, so the blood that's on him is his is an image of his own sacrifice. It's an image of the slain lamb. Uh, the sword that comes from his mouth is his testimony. What's his testimony? His testimony is of martyrdom and nonviolence. Mm. That's how he overcomes the world. And that that's there's no how battle. he defeats the kings of the world. There's, there's no, no battle. battle. There. There's no yeah. battle, right? Yeah, and, and if you get the throne room right, you're going to see that when you get later. If If you come out of the throne room with this syncretism of lion and lamb, mm. you're going to read Revelation very differently, and you're going to come to a mm. syncretism of sword out of his mouth, yes, testimony, but also violent weapon. Right. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I think I say in the book, but you almost have to willfully ignore the metaphors about, about witness as a double-edged sword all through scriptures in Psalms and in, and in Paul to read that image as if it's a, a violent weapon that Jesus is using. It's a very common biblical metaphor that when we speak truth, it cuts through our yes. lies. It cuts through yeah. our world. He's very clearly saying that. Yeah. But if you want it to be, sure, you can imagine it as a claymore. Um, but if you get the throne room right, you know, you, you're going to have a good setup to read the rest of those mm. images. So mm. Pivotal. Oh, I'm so curious, Jeremy, like what words of advice and insight would you have for yeah. the church leader, the pastor that, you know, they, they're feeling cautious about the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's enough to be cautious about, but like, what are we missing out if we, if we don't go here, if we don't take this time to mm -hmm. capture essentially a, a reading of the apocalypse? Why, why does this matter? Why should church leaders and mm -hmm. pastors and people lean in here? What does this mean for us? So this might not be good for my sales, but I am going to say this, that if you're, if you're intimidated by Revelation, uh, and I'll include pastors in this, but certainly anyone who's listening, if you're intimidated by Revelation and it's it's triggering because there's lots of those stories that you've grown up with for a long time and you're having a tough time resonating with the Jesus that's uh, on display there, honestly, my advice is just to forget it. Like, you don't need it. You don't need it to follow the way of Jesus in the world. You can do that by engaging with the Jesus of the Gospels, by learning what he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, by capturing the ethos of the kingdom that, that he puts on display in the Sermon by the Sea and on all of his parables. Like, sometimes it's okay to set things aside for a time. And sure. if the book of Leviticus is confusing to you, if the book of Revelation is scary for you, honestly, my advice is just to leave it alone. And maybe there will be a day that you can come back to it and re-engage. Now, if you're at that point and it's like, hey, I, I have heard these interpretations and they've been harmful to me or they've been disconcerting and now I want to come back to it, then here's my advice on this side, would be always to read through to narrative arcs. So when you are dealing with a genre that's trying to build up and then subvert an expectation, one of the worst things that you can do is stop yes. before the climax. Yeah. yeah. Because you will you will read to the buildup, right? So I wept because no one could open the scroll. And then I heard the lion of the tribe of Judah. If you stop there, mm. you are going to get stuck exactly where John doesn't want you to be. So mm -hmm. every scene, and, and I know it gets tricky. I mean, I make my arguments for why scenes end in different places and when they begin again. And, and, and that takes some, some skill and some reading. You can read my book and check those out. But, but even for yourself, if you just kind of think through, what am I reading? Where is the narrative beginning and where's the narrative ending? And John will give you clues. Like he'll say things like, I was in the spirit again. That's a sign we're starting over again. Some of these, these languages, but read through to the end of it. 
and then look back on what happened through that arc. Where did it take me? And then where did it leave me? Don't read verse by verse. And certainly do not stop at the moments that feel uncomfortable for you. Mm. Push through to the next thing. Mm -hmm. Because I promise every time, and, and, you know, I talk about them in the book. People send them to me all the time. Every time you show me a verse that looks disconnected from the message of Jesus, I will show you that on the next page, yeah. you're going to see a subversion of that. So there's my two advice. If you're not ready for Revelation, here's my permission. Ignore it. Go back to the gospel. Center yourself on Jesus. Focus on that. Do what you can for the people around you and, 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 and live into that. When you're ready, make sure you read in narrative arcs. Look for the ending of a story and look for the narrative the next one begins, because that's how you're going to get that, that meaning that John has. When you read a verse, I can give you all kinds of verses out of Revelation that are horrific and have right. nothing to do with the Jesus that's revealed in Revelation. It's the arcs. It's the narratives. It's the mm -hmm. full images that reveal Jesus to us. I love that you um, just elaborated on that, Jeremy, because, and I've heard you say a couple of different times and maybe even um, said in your book um, that you just turn the page. <laughs> if you come right. to a place where you're like, ah, turn the page, keep going, mm -hmm. keep reading. I think that's a really great practical mm -hmm. uh, moment for folks to really remember and take with them as they are encountering mm -hmm. this. Question about your community at Commons Church. Yeah. How have they received this book of yours? How has it landed with them? And is it, has it been all great? Pitchforks. Or has there Pitchforks. been some pushback? <laughs> or... <laughs> so, you know, as I, as I mentioned, Commons has been founded from the start with a lot of the, uh, the the real grounding principles that that are sitting below this book. You know, Revelation is a specific application of a lot of the themes that are built into the ground and the foundation of commons. So I don't think that there's been a lot of um, angst or struggle uh, with with reading this. Um, we did do a series on the book this fall, uh, which which was actually a lot of fun because we did eight weeks which obviously we couldn't work through all the book of Revelation or Upside Down Apocalypse, but we we picked some highlights. But uh, here we have a, a, a really incredible teaching team. So I only taught um, half of that series and uh, Bobby and Scott who are on our team taught the rest. And I, what I loved was taking Revelation and taking my approach to Revelation, but then handing that to our team and getting them to see, uh, getting to see them take it in different directions. So half that series, I got to sit back and learn even new ideas um, as we were doing that. And I think that's, you know, the real beauty of um, working in team, but also the beauty of a book like Revelation that is so um, diverse in its interpretive grid that it, right. that it offers you. So that was fun. I, you know, I do think that eight weeks of Revelation in church on a Sunday, I mean, that was probably the limit of what our church could do. At some point they were like, all right, all right, this is, this yeah, is great. But let's, let's get back to Jesus. Let's get what, back to Were they basically things. like, all right, pastor, like we'll buy your book. Okay. Just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's just that was already. the only call every Sunday. Now come forward <laughs> yeah. and put your money in the, and get your book. Right. But, yeah. Maybe that was it. I, I mean, yeah. my hope was that it was the opportunity for those who didn't want to buy the book and weren't really interested in, in reading that much about Revelation to, to sort of get our approach to it here yeah. at Commons without having to do that. Uh, maybe some of them took it the other way and felt like they had to read the book. I don't know. But, <laughs> but no, I, I mean, I think I think the beauty of um, this community and, and I think why I have uh, certainly loved my time here, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the opportunities I've had here is that we have shaped a community that is, is um, grounded in 
in the principles behind this book. So mm-hmm. in some ways, it's like, no, this is just the application yeah. of, of the Jesus that we're following and the way that we're orienting ourselves as, as a peace community. Um, people may pick apart specific interpretations and we may debate that we have a discord server in our community and and we've had some good dialogue back and forth in there but the general premise of reading through jesus keeping jesus always at the center of our hermeneutic i mean that that's our commitment together so then we can debate we can argue we can wrestle back and forth without feeling the need to uh be at odds you know we, we do it within community we do that within a shared resonance around the story it sounds like that that that's the culture that you guys have there, and so therefore this wasn't a big like yeah, that's exactly it, moment. Right? So, I'm yeah. curious like, though, oh, more of the same. Have you had mm-hmm. any of your folks that maybe grew up with some of like the pop theology readings of Revelation that then perhaps reported to you like, oh, this has been so helpful, or 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 that yeah. kind of feedback? Yeah, absolutely. So mm-hmm. I would say, you know, this is what you would get at comments. You wouldn't get a lot of people who are steeped in these kind of uh, violent, futuristic readings. But there are a lot of people at Commons who that is their background and they've deconstructed and they moved yeah. away from that. But yeah. what they may not have had is the opportunity to reconstruct a view of Revelation. Yeah. They know that that doesn't work for them anymore and they've left it behind. So sort of like I was saying about <laughs> they've left behind. Like yeah, behind. I know, I know. Yeah, but <laughs> not intended, but it works. Yeah. Oh um, my word. You know, so I think, you, you know, a lot of our people are in that stage where it's like, um, Revelation doesn't make sense to me. So I've, I've, I've moved on from it. And this yeah. was their chance to re-engage a little bit. And I think some of those people would say, okay, this is enough for me. Like, I don't, I don't need to dive into Revelation. I don't need to know what all these images mean, but to know that there's a reading that's out there yeah. and that if I ever want to come back to this, I can, I can re-engage with, and I can do that centered on the Jesus that I follow and that I've fallen in love with, uh, that's comforting for a lot of people. So that absolutely has been a very common uh, feedback that I think all of us on the teaching team um, got when when we taught through this piece. I can imagine it being so healing. It's just like a a confirmation of, no, it's the same Jesus. It's it's not, he doesn't all of a sudden flip a coin and become Rambo. You know, it's the same Jesus and that's okay. That's great. Yeah, and it's it's exactly that. It's not that everybody needs to be a revelation nut now, and everybody needs to know off the top of their head how to interpret all these verses. It's exactly what you're saying, that we can have confidence that this, this canon, this book that's been handed to us, is not um, split in these different directions. There's not these different Jesuses that are opposed to each other. No, there is, there is a consistent theme and an ethic of Jesus that we can follow throughout this. And so even if you're not, you know, really into revelation you can read this book you can recenter yourself on jesus and you can regain that confidence in the person that you follow you don't you don't have to like you know become a revelation scholar right last question for you today jeremy and Uh, again i just want to thank you for your time today thank you so so much it's been so rich no worries i've had to remember this is a conversation right and because i'm just like soaking it all in no 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 we have to engage and talk back not don't just like listen and take notes shauna (laughs) that that's just because i talk a lot don't worry that's that's no it's been so good it's been so good thank you i know i'm like i have to steal all of this for myself like i'm already like (laughs) Yeah, revelations there. I'm actually teaching a, a course at my church on uh, eschatology for everyone. And oh, I, nice. I, I love your your book. I think I'm definitely going to use it as a resource. So I would encourage dear listener, if you're looking for good resources, this is a good one. I'm not just saying that. I read it myself. I put it in my top five for sure. Oh, thanks. I appreciate yeah. that. 
so I, I think there's just a lot of despair these days about the future. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. uh, there's a sense of a nihilism that, that has mm-hmm. taken um, control of just many narratives. Like, like for example, there's there was one recent study that said that, like, for the first time in 50 years, the birth rate in North America has just plummeted mm-hmm. by, like, 4 or 5%. And, and uniquely, when they started, like, doing the survey work on this, they were asking millennials, Gen Z, okay, why are you not mm-hmm. having kids anymore? You know, there's a lot of the typical answers, like economics, stage of life, all that. Mm-hmm. But then there was a whole bunch of, like, fears of climate change, climate anxiety. Yeah. There's uh, the high cost of living. There was a uh, fear of war, pessimistic ideas about like social systems. There's just a lot uh, of fear and and despair these days. And certainly for many folks, I think like the church hasn't always helped them in this regard. Like there's <laughs> been a sort of, right? There's been this theology of, well, it's all going to go burn. Like, mm-hmm. why would you care about the earth? Why Why would you care about sustainability? And like, we've told this to our people. We've worked against yeah. the things that are destroyed. We partnered with the things that are destroying the, the earth. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious, like, as a last sort of hope-oriented um, discussion, how can the book of Revelation give our generations coming up after us a hopeful vision of the future mm-hmm. where's this all headed jeremy uh i want to say two things about this i think one of the reasons that revelation is important is that it doesn't present us with uh you know a pie in the sky everything's going to be okay image I think that can be patronizing, and I think it can actually be damaging, because when we present this idea, this sort of go- uh, prosperity gospel light, that look, if you just get onto this Jesus train and you follow him, um, things will be good, and it's okay to have kids, because, you know, it'll be fine, and climate change will all work out. Um, I think that that creates a context that can be really damaging to somebody's faith, because that's not how the world works. And Revelation doesn't play those games with us. It tells us that sometimes it's hard. If you look at the seven letters, some of those churches, the real struggle is that things are going so well, they've become disconnected with reality. But some of those churches are having real problems, um, either economically or politically or, or or just, you know, finding their place socially. And I think acknowledging that is important. I think, I, I don't want to be pessimistic, but I think if you're going to have hope, you have to be in touch with reality. Yeah, And I yeah. think it's important that yeah. Revelation allows us to do that. Yeah. It doesn't pretend to us everything's okay and you can just smile and you can you, know, you can go through the world oblivious. It's telling us, no, some things are hard sometimes and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Because in the end, we are not abandoned through this process. Mm-hmm. That Jesus understands these things. Uh, Jesus heals the world through his self-giving. That when we model that in our lives and we follow that pattern and we give ourselves away to our neighbors... Um, that there will be a cost to that, but it will be good. And it will be good not just for them, it will be good for us. Mm-hmm. And that ultimately our hope has to be held in tension with this balance of there are things that need to change yeah. and there's a story that is moving forward. And it is moving forward towards the healing of the universe that begins in us. It translates into the way that we engage the people around us in local communities. It will slowly become our politic. And the way that we engage the systems, the structures, the principalities and powers of the world. And eventually, it will become the way that we participate along with Jesus in the dismantling of evil and the transformation of the universe. And that kind of 
pairing of honest assessment of the world in front of us. And and I want to be important here. Honest assessment of the world in front of us. The Revelation is not trying to scare you. And in fact, I think it's really important that in Revelation, some of the churches are doing really well because that says that John is not trying to create fear Right. to monetize or to use, right? Like right. like he's he's trying to be honest about the different situations that a lot of different people are in. But an honest assessment of the world paired with a belief that ultimately God will make all things right. Mm-hmm. That God will not just do a new thing, the way Isaiah says, but God will do a new thing and make all things changed, all things healed, all things right, that we can actually believe in that. That becomes a really potent way to engage the world. We're not naive. But we're also not pessimistic. We're not nihilistic. And we believe that our actions, in some small way, can contribute to a story that, yeah, may not be completed in our lifetime, but we are contributing to a story that inevitably, ultimately, of course, in the end, will actually come true. That is, I think, an honest and a compelling way to live your life. Sometimes we do this with people like, you're special, you're going to change the world, you just got to find your thing. Maybe what this is telling us is actually, maybe you're not, and maybe you're not going to change the world. But in some small way, the more you live out the story of Jesus, you will get to contribute with your life to a story that will outlive you and that will one day change everything. That's a lot less pressure, but it's also something that I can live into and I can live up to. I don't need to change the world. I just need to contribute in some small way to a narrative that will ultimately change everything. I I like that. I love that. Love that. I love it. Well, I love that. Thank you. I feel hopeful. <laughs> well, Jesus Collective, we want to inspire a, vis- a hopeful vision of the future. So this is great. That's why we like asking the hopeful questions. Absolutely. And who knew in a podcast about apocalypse, we would leave with hope. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a believer. I've been converted. Um, no, I am hopeful. Thank Jeremy. Seriously, thank you so much for your work and for your time and just for your voice. Um, it has been truly incredible. Really quickly, where can folks find your book? Amazon, I'm assuming. Yeah, you can you can buy it in all the all the places. So okay. Amazon's probably the easiest for a lot of us, but uh, anywhere you buy books, uh, you know, normally it should be there. And then uh, Apple Books and audi- the audiobook just came out uh, just before Christmas. So if you prefer prefer to listen instead of read, uh, you can head over to either Apple Books or Audible and, and pick it up that way as well. But I, I appreciate the, support, the, the, the response. Who I actually the read the book. Oh, okay. Yes! Perfect. Yes. Yeah. That's it. Done. 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 It, was, it was my first time. Like I speak for a living, right? I'm a pastor, but yeah. uh, it, it, was a, it was a tough thing to do to read an entire book that way. So I have a lot more respect for narrators now. So yeah. Perfect. Oh, you guys check it out, please. And uh this podcast, you guys, um, hopefully you have enjoyed it. Hopefully you have been refreshed. You've been renewed. You you have hope. Um, but don't just keep that for yourself. Share it with others. Share this podcast on your socials. And hey, maybe even send it to three friends who you think that this would resonate with. We're giving you a little bit of a homework assignment because we feel like this was just that good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I challenge you, like, Pick something that Jeremy said, like one of those many quotable nuggets that he laid on us and share that with other folks. I just think there are many people who could benefit from this conversation. There are those who have been hesitant, who've been fearful, who've walked away from even incorporating revelation into their study. And I, and this kind of lets folks know that it's going to be all right. So please, um, 
listen, share, and um, come back for our next uh, episode. Thank you for tuning in and we will see you all next time. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thanks, Such Jeremy. So much. That was a blast. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to check out JesusCollective.com where you can find more resources and upcoming events, learn about getting involved through partnership, and donate so we can keep offering content like this and engage more people and churches around the world. We'd also love to hear from you, so feel free to reach out to us with your ideas and feedback. You can drop us a message on social media or email us at connect at JesusCollective.com. Until next time.